0: Hello and welcome to Field Notes, a podcast about linguistic fieldwork. I'm Martha Sutsui Billens, and today's episode is with N. Ha'alilio Solomon. Ha'a Leo Solomon is an instructor at the University of Hawaii at Manoa at the Kauai Huelani Center for Hawaiian Language, where he is also a PhD candidate in the Department of Linguistics. He is also a translator for Olelo Hawaii with Awaialu and Ho'opulapula, and his studies involve language documentation and revitalization, as well as linguistic ideologies and attitudes surrounding Olelo Hawaii. He is the author of the forthcoming book chapter, Rescuing Mauna Lua, Shifting Nomenclatures and the Reconfiguration of Space in Hawaii Kai. Ha'a is someone whose work I've admired for a long time. He is not only a researcher, but also an activist. He has a radio show that he does completely in Hawaiian. And he is also involved in translation and interpretation and teaching. So he does a lot of things and it was really interesting to hear about his story and all of the amazing work that he is doing and his thoughts and his perspective on what it means to be part of a language revitalization movement and what that entails. Hi, ha! How are you?
1: Aloha, Martha. Aloha. I'm doing well. Well,
0: thanks for staying up late for Field Notes. I really appreciate you taking the time.
1: Mahalo for having me.
0: Yeah, mahalo. Um, so to start, can you tell us about how you first got started in linguistics?
1: Yeah, I really always, for as long as I can remember, I enjoyed languages. And then I, I discovered... Probably around 12 years old, I had a knack for learning other languages. It was just sort of my other kids. Some kids are good at math. Some kids are good at sports. I was good at seeing the patterns in languages and also kind of mimicking sounds. So I kind of played to my strengths, learned Spanish at a a probably be probably by the time I was 13, I was um, speaking Spanish pretty well. And then I came to the university where I f- formally started learning of Hawaii, and then I studied in Italy for a semester abroad, learned Italian. Oh, no. I started going to Tahiti. Um, I started going in 2009, and I've been at least once every year since. So I've been there several times. So I picked up French and Tahitian going down there. In 2014, when I entered into grad school as a, as an unclassified graduate student, I took classes all over in all kinds of different departments, Hawaiian studies, English, history, Hawaiian language. And then I had never taken a linguistics class besides the really entry level 100. I think it's 102 in our, on our campus. But other than that, I'd never taken a linguistics class, and I don't really remember whose idea it was. But in 2016, when I finally applied to the linguistics master's program at UH, I got in and I've been there ever since.
0: And now you're doing your PhD, right?
1: Yeah, I finished my master's in 2018 and I went right into my uh, PhD. So I'm two years into that. I am technically ABD, but this whole COVID situation has kind of put things up in the air. (laughs) Mm -hmm. But um, yeah, I'm halfway into my Ph.D. program in the Linguistics Department at UH Manoa.
0: Can you tell us more about your research? So you mentioned that you're ABD, so what is your dissertation? In, in the U.S. it's called a dissertation, right, not a thesis?
1: The master's programs do theses, and then Ph.D. Progr- programs are usually called dissertations.
0: Okay, so it's the opposite of the U.K. It's so confusing. It's so confusing, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So so your ABD, all but dissertation. So can you talk a little bit about what your current research is on and what you're writing your dissertation on?
1: So I'm writing my dissertation on the attitudes and ideologies that surround Hawaiian language. It's mostly because the Hawaiian language situation is um, pretty well known for being a successful model of revitalization. Hawaiian language, Olada Hawaii, in the state of Hawaii is a an official language alongside English since 1978 of the Constitutional Convention named Ola Hawaii, an official language. So we have the sort of policy backing it. We have a climbing number of majors that declare a Hawaiian language major every semester, every year. It's pretty steady, if not gradually climbing over the last 15, 20 years. So we have this sort of perceived economic value Mm -hmm. and then there's a very strong Hawaiian identity tied to it and that social identity provides a social capital to the language but there are still very much very much uh, there's still a significant notion that Hawaiian language only belongs in certain spaces I find and this is only because when I got asked to interpret for a few people who requested a Hawaiian language interpreter for their court proceedings, the judge just kind of had this kind of mocking attitude, kind of um, Mm. attitude that they were wasting tax dollars. And she even said, like, well, I know he speaks English too, right? Referring to the person I was interpreting for, who was essentially the defendant. The person I was interpreting for and I had just five or ten minutes before witnessed a similar misdemeanor being heard in in court that day in tagalog i believe it was and nobody bats an eye when that happened you know it was just regular normal business and then it comes time for the hawaii language case to be heard and it just was a there was a tension Mm -hmm. there was a certain tension that i wasn't even on trial but i kind of almost felt like I felt heavily scrutinized as the interpreter and I was thinking sort of a double standard got me thinking why you know these other languages in which court proceedings are interpreted aren't even the official language of where we live mm-hmm. and yet there's this attitude towards the official language the co-official language that's one of the dimensions that I'm trying to uncover in my dissertation research there's so many others there are positive lots and lots of positive ideologies and attitudes about surrounding all like i said earlier it's there's a strong hawaiian identity that really i think has guided the the success of the mm-hmm. the whole campaign the whole grassroots movement but then there are still these intricate really nuanced really complex ideologies that are That are pretty negative. Mm
0: -hmm. Like pushing against the the positive ideologies.
1: And they're limiting the scope and the range across which Olero Hawai'i probably could be revitalized if it was, if those attitudes weren't sort of standing in the way.
0: Mm -hmm. Can we talk more about how language and identity are intertwined in Hawai'i? Maybe you can speak about your own experience as a Hawaiian person.
1: Sure. So I I have about 25 first cousins and then multiple second cousins, and, you know, pretty big family. I think I'm the only grandchild of my grandparents on my father's side, on my Hawaiian side, who learned Hawaiian to this to this level, to this extent. Mm-hmm. I used to get like my cousins would call me and my voicemail is in O'lelo Hawaii, Says what you would expect it to say, leave a message after the beep. And uh, they would say, like, oh, sorry, I don't know what you said, but call me back. And it's intended to be humorous, I think, but there is, and this sort of goes back to a, this is another kind of thread in this thing that I'm, this story that I'm trying to tell. There were these undertones of maybe shame or.
0: Like defensiveness.
1: And even defensiveness, that's a great word. And so I think we. We all know Hawaiians and local, non-Hawaiian locals alike and people looking at the example of Hawaiian language revitalization as a movement know that there is a strong component. Identity plays a strong part in that, but we're still sort of navigating just how that kind of plays out in Mm -hmm. real life situations. Because I've also seen similar reactions on social media during mm-hmm. the Protect Mauna Kea Aole TMT movement which garnered like global attention. Yeah. The the leaders of the movement would often do at one point they were doing daily sort of briefings and kind of um updates from Mauna Kea and for the first few minutes, um, Koho Okahikanuha would use Ola Hawai'i. And so he's using Ola Hawai'i and uh, he got asked to do an interview for a, a local news station and I think that was even, there wasn't like an extended interview that he was using Olerahawai for. It was like a live video on social media and somebody said, okay, now in English for all of us, Kanaka who can't understand, right? So when comments like that come up, it sort of is an indication of some kind of un- underlying, you know, maybe... Um, like attention tension. Again, a shame, or a maybe an insecurity that we're both Hawaiian by blood, and you speak Hawaiian, but I don't. How does that play out? How does that make us different? Mm-hmm. And these are really sensitive subjects, you know, yeah. and um, they're they can be difficult to talk about. But so far, I've found that even just talking about them, if you approach it correctly if you let everybody know know your intention, uh, your intentions, if it's truly for the sake of moving forward, making progress, even coming to finding common ground, even finding, even getting to a cathartic space, a healing space, where all of those negative emotions or negative reactions or just negative attitudes, negativity in general can be transcended then that's progress certainly this tension that these attitudes at play these ideologies at play that deserves some attention and discussion and research
0: yeah yeah definitely i've heard you say how the hawaiian language does not have a like an ethnic gatekeeping aspect to it the way that I know a lot of other smaller languages have can you talk more about that because this is something i've also noticed that olelo hawaii feels very inclusive mm-hmm. to to people who don't have hawaiian blood but if they have an interest in learning the language it, it does feel very welcoming can you can you share your thoughts on that
1: yeah so as far as i know when the aha punana leo which is the Association of Language Nests, was established in 1983, and then they had their first school in 1984. And this is from a paper by Pila Wilson and his wife, Kawanoi Kamana, champions, both champions for uh, Hawaiian language revitalization on Hawaii Island. They said, the movement started with one rule Eola lo Hawai'i let Hawaiian language live. And it was that simple, so it wasn't exclusive to age or ethnicity or anything. It was if you want to speak Hawaiian, if you want if you're interested in the future and the the life of Olalo Hawai'i in Hawai'i and beyond, then you can absolutely participate. So it's always been inclusive and I think that's been an important part that's helped it succeed, helped the movement succeed. One of my mentors, Pua Kea said, he was he was running the Ahahui Olaro Hawai'i, which was the Hawaiian Language Society in the 80s, I believe, well into the 90s, and even in 2000, it sort of lost momentum. And then we tried to revive it. So actually, technically, I'm the president. <laughs> Technically, I'm the president of the Ahu'i Ola Hawaii. We, we have had a hard time. It's something about millennials trying to run a 501c3. It doesn't work. It's just us. <laughs> I don't know. But Puakia, my mentor, Puakia Nogumair, was running it very, very in its heyday. It was in the golden age of the Ahu'i, And so he certainly stepped up when we revived it in 2017, I think, and said, I'm here to advise and support in whatever way you need. But make sure you don't make this a race based thing. That'll be the quickest way to kill it is to make it exclusive mm-hmm. uh, because so many people identify with Hawaii. so ma- so many people love Hawaii. So many people love the culture and the just wanna want a part of it and feel like they're contributing back to these islands in a meaningful way which can sometimes be detrimental, but for the most part, it's very good. It's a very positive thing. And so learning Hawaiian language is one of those ways that they can feel like they're part of this big or, you know, magic. So learning Hawaiian language has never been exclusive. Based on what I know, I think there might be some like small, smaller transmissions of knowledge in a very cultural sort of ceremonial setting where the where that might, membership might be a little bit more... Restricted. Based on, yeah, restricted criteria and stuff like that, but...
0: Yeah. Yeah, that's mm-hmm. cool. That's really cool. Can we talk about your work in language revitalization?
1: Yeah, I've always kind of... I've taught Hawaiian language now for over 10 years. Most of that time has been at the university. I've also been a translator and... I mean I just have a hard time because I feel like the th- th- I came into this scene I guess kind of unwittingly in 2005 when I f- first took my Hawaiian language class 101 at UH and I feel like the so much of the groundwork had been laid before so much of the progress and success had already been you know happened and had been celebrated and I was just coming in sort of 30, 30 years in. <laughs> so I don't know what, at what point I'm allowed to use that term and apply it to myself. I work with uh, Danny Yarbrough in our department as well, linguistics at UH, and she and I have we made videos about uh, using a mo'olelo or a traditional story in Hawaiian language that, that's intended to actually be a teaching tool as well as a language acquisition kind of assessment tool, instrument. I do a weekly Hawaiian language, Hawaiian music radio show on our college radio station called KTUH. My show is called Kipu Kaleo, and it's entirely in Olelo, Hawaii. I play really, really old vintage vinyl Hawaiian music. So that's something that listeners can always uh, rely on, being able to tune in from 3 to 6 on Sundays and hear Hawaiian music and hear Hawaiian language the entire program. Sometimes I'll have interviews.
0: And we'll link that in the show notes for sure.
1: Thank you. Yeah. Our college radio station, KTH has been amazing in... First of all, just being so open to multilingual programming, but also Hawaiian language programming, they've they've always made sure that a Hawaiian language Hawaiian music show has been in a sort of our prime slot of the week and facilitated that programming. But I don't know, it's kind of a funny thing do you ever feel like what oh, is revitalization? So at what point are you able to call yourself one?
0: Do you feel like do you think of yourself as an activist for the language or is that also like
1: kind of too strong of a word? Absolutely. That's a word I'm comfortable applying to myself, a language activist. I think because for the case of Ola Hawaii, we have such, we're blessed mm-hmm. and so I'm so grateful that we have the documentation oral and textual that we do have for Hawaiian language. And If you're an activist like me for the language, or if you're an academic, or if you're just, you know, a language nerd, a language enthusiast, then you can go and play in these archives all day. And they're open source, and they're free, and they're right there at our fingertips. And I have to remind myself, like, there are so many other revitalization programs that don't have that same documentation that same extent of documentation
0: yeah i mean most don't right like most languages don't have a good documentation or a good corpus besides you know maybe some scant dictionary Mm. or something that some missionary made it's the case for most It's the case for the language i work with Mm -hmm. there's just not a lot of documentation can you talk more about that about the
1: corpus yeah so the textual corpus is mainly i guess the core of it is comprised of hawaiian language newspapers that began being published in 1834 and run well into the 1970s oh i should know this date but might even be 1980s but of course the more time passed the more language shift happened the more bilingual the newspapers became and then the more hawaiian language faded out of them but There are a few estimates. If we took all of the articles that are printed in Hawaiian language in these newspapers and transferred them to like 12 point font onto eight and a half by 11 sheets of paper, we'd have over a million pages. Some people even say 1.5 million. We're so fortunate to have that. And beautiful. It's a beautiful corpus. There are genealogy chants there are origin chants there are hawaiian stories there are stories translated from hebrew and chinese and cinderella is translated in the arabian nights is translated in the newspapers like several times and then there's the daily news and then there's news from other newspapers that they get that it were that were sent to hawaii and they're re they're translated into hawaiian and, and printed i mean there is So much, the scope of the content is so impressive. And we're just really, really fortunate. And that's just the textual. And then the oral documentation begins in probably, you know, the 50s. Mrs. Pukui, Mary Kavera Pukui, was such a visionary, being able to foresee that one day revitalizationists, whether they kind of predicted it or not, they'll probably greatly benefit from, she was the one who wrote the dictionary. But alongside that work, she was also going to all the islands and speaking with people and interviewing them and recording them and documenting stories that were relevant to just that very localized area where they were born and raised. She was a, doing all sorts of documentation linguistic and cultural and all kinds of um Hawaiian epistemologies and so she really started and then in the in the the 1970s is known as the Hawaiian renaissance for for spurring a cultural renaissance and then shortly after in the 80s um or even in the 70s too there was a radio program called Koleo Hawaii which was hosted most of the time by Larry Kimura who is um you know, such a great resource nowadays. Larry Kimura is kind of the, he used to be the father of the uh, Hawaiian language revitalization movement. Now he's considered the grandfather. I mean, he's pretty synonymous with revitalization. And this kind of goes back to our earlier point because he was really the one that was interviewing all those kupuna who were native speakers in the 70s, 80s, up into the 90s. And even still today, there are some around that I'm sure he's, I'm sure he's still interviewing, but it's because of him that we have 400, 500 plus hours of native speech recorded. That's also all been made into open source. That's kind of why it's hard for someone like me who came into the game pretty late to um, speak at length about my efforts to revitalize or I mean, because the documentation has has been so thorough. Mm -hmm there are many ways we can revitalize it still but it's pretty it's a pretty large it's a pretty widespread movement so me just teaching it i i guess is contributing to the revitalization and then the small side projects my radio show the the animation story that Danny and I did there's a monthly newsletter that she and I also did 12 issues of kind of what were they they wanted bite-sized language lessons that you can cut out from the newsletter and stick it on your refrigerator. So we did that.
0: And your interpretation.
1: Yeah, I'm also an interpreter and tra- and a translator. Which is a totally different kind of political game too. It's a very valid question to ask. If you're translating, isn't that eventually going to de-incentivize people from learning the language because they can just access all of that be- those beautiful stories, those materials, those deeds, those house titles, those you know, whatever document, whatever is being translated into English most of the time, at least for the non that I work for, what if sort of, if you're leaving no stone unturned in 50 years, there's going to be so much bilingual material, some things should stay in just in Hawaiian because it's so much more beautiful and it also keeps this sort of incentive for people to learn Hawaiian. If you want to read the Hiiaka Poliopele story, you should read it in Hawaiian. So that's a double-edged sword that I wasn't sure I realized when I accepted this position as translator. That's interesting.
0: That's such an interesting perspective. I had never thought of it like that, that by translating because I mean, I think of translating as, oh, we're increasing mm-hmm. accessibility. Like you're making it accessible in both languages, and that's a good thing. and also getting like the Hawaiian version out there simultaneously. but but yeah, this idea that if people can get it in English, why would they bother trying to read it in Hawaiian is, wow, that's that's a
1: really interesting,
0: yeah idea.
1: I had never really thought of it that way either until yeah it's it makes total sense. Another one of my Kumu mentors is Kahikina di Silva, and she said, I'm not against translation, but it should just be translation is only temporary it's like a an aid that we can use for now, but as soon as we revitalize and reclaim and restore our language across its fullest range of function functions as soon as we have our you know sovereignty back as soon as we have a critical mass that speaks it with a certain level of fluency we will no longer need that and that really isn't that the ultimate goal and i just was like okay jaw off the floor that's exactly right and it was exactly what i needed to hear At the time, this is probably about three years ago now, because my career was literally going in this direction of translation, which is not a bad thing. But that totally pulled me back towards the revitalization trajectory of it that I didn't even realize I had kind of veered off course. There's no, you know, I'm not knocking translation, but um. There are some, and even in the nonprofit that I work with, this is a recurring conversation we have. We probably should leave certain things only in Hawaiian because it probably would not be appropriate Mm. to translate. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Can you share about how your experience has been as a Hawaiian person researching the Hawaiian language?
1: Yeah, I think it goes back to the idea that the movement has never been race-based. I have heard some sentiments and notions that imply that knowledge is genetic, which is something that my mentor, who's not Hawaiian, actually said. I don't think knowledge is genetic. And then there are some people that Really believe in ancestral DNA and I've felt ancestral DNA before so I guess I would consider myself a believer of ancestral DNA but at the same time someone who's not Hawaiian doing research on Hawaiian language is just essentially handling data which is a safe place for them to be and a safe boundary for them to be mindful of and a safe place for, for them to work from but um sometimes it's hard for, I wouldn't ever reduce Hawaiian language just to data. This conversation happened when we we're talking about how should non-Hawaiian researchers navigate their work and, and the fields that they, the circles that they work in at, without being Hawaiian. Like I said, that's a kind of a a safe way for them to kind of guarantee that they are not appropriating anything or misappropriating mm-hmm. anything any knowledge or any kuliana mm-hmm. responsibility privilege birthright that they're saying i'm just kind of handling i'm bringing forth data and that's really sort of the the kind of science part of it the data part of it but i think it revitalization or you know teaching goes way beyond the data part of it. And so, yeah, I think being Hawaiian probably helps that. But that's not to say it's not, it doesn't ever get a little tense. Am I Hawaiian enough? You know, even though the revitalization movement for Hawaiian language has never been race-based, at least not to the Ahapunanaleo and immersion schools and the DOE and the universities, I think there are certain Times when race plays a big part in kind of reviving, reclaiming the bigger picture of what is it, what it means to be Hawaiian. Yeah, and those are that's a touchy subject for most people, for a lot of people.
0: Yeah, 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 for sure. I mean, because I I'm one of those people, right? I work with. A community who's not my own community so I'm essentially the steward of data and I think it is you you do have to think critically and tread carefully and make sure that every move you make and is with the consent and not only consent but like with the you know aligned with the goals of of what the community also wants.
1: Right. Yeah, there's also a lot of non-Hawaiian researchers that are interested in Hawaii language that kind of make that blunder all the time. They make that mistake all the time of just imposing or th- assuming that they know what's best for the community.
0: Yeah. You know, the, the person with the PhD is not the expert. The community are the experts.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: Like a, it doesn't. It shouldn't be so radical, but
1: <laughs> I think it's a really important guideline. Mm. You're not the. You know how to set up a microphone and. You know what polysynthesis is, but. The speakers, the community members, they're the, they're the experts, and. It's hard to under. It's hard to undo or kind of. Um, reverse that trope. That paradigm yeah. that's been in place for three hundred years, or yeah. longer in different and f- in, in other fields, it's kind of been that way for even longer, and it kind of still is.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do you have any advice for aspiring researchers who want to break into linguistics, specifically Hawaiian aspiring linguists?
1: I think I think we talked about before. I see so many opportunities for analysis on our language that there's a clear um desire by a lot of people to learn Hawaiian they want a lot of people want to learn Hawaiian language themselves a lot of people want to send their children to immersion schools um and then the kids end up sending their kids when they're they're old enough to have their own children that cycle repeats and that's a beautiful thing and it so I think there's no doubt that we love our language. So I'm all for deepening our understanding of it in not, not to say whatever way possible, but I think linguistics is one way we can really critically and crucially understand it in uh, from different perspectives um, on a much deeper level and really push ourselves to uptake this movement and um, maybe kind of kind of reinvigorate the movement in a way so the last cultural renaissance was in the 70s began in the 70s mm-hmm. and these things are usually cyclical right the kind of revolutions happen and i don't know too much about the psychology behind or the study behind revolutions or renaissances or renewals but they happen every their pattern right so i think a lot of people have had this idea floating around here we're due for another renaissance i think mauna Kea really mobilized a lot of a lot of people hawaiian and not speakers and not practitioners and not or you know a lot of people rallied behind that so they kind of saw that as a sort of um groundbreaker for the second renaissance and people have said i think that the second renaissance is going to be a lot more focused on the language itself you know we're 45 years into the some really groundbreaking very significant very successful forward progress and um, what does the next 50 years for us look like so i would just recommend anyone even interested mildly interested remotely interested in linguistics and you have a, a love for olelo Hawaii, that those two can really be mutually beneficial. Linguistics has provided me with a skill set that I really wouldn't have otherwise, that I can go into and use in my in classrooms, in pedagogy design. You know, I probably wouldn't be here if it wasn't for linguistics. So I think it's an awesome field, and we were talking about earlier how it's taken a turn it took a turn a long time ago to really prioritize the community itself it's beyond even just community oriented it's like community member lead it right so it's a great time to uh, for both disciplines i think
0: yeah yeah that's so cool well thank you ha this was so nice can you tell us where our listeners can learn more about your work and find things that you're doing online?
1: Yeah, I have a website that I'll give you, and if you don't mind linking it in to this podcast. I will, yeah. Also, the, sure. my radio show, and also all of those lessons that we, um, well, I think my website should if it's updated, and if it's not, I will update it. We'll take you to all those things we talked about the lessons, the animated story. So that's my website. And um, thank you for including it.
0: Yeah, definitely. Yeah, thank you so much.
1: Mahalo ya oi, Martha. Thank you for having me.
0: You've been listening to Field Notes, a podcast about linguistic fieldwork. This podcast is hosted and produced by Martha Satsui-Billens, with production help from Laura Satsui. Our music is by Lobo Loco, and our logo is by e Designs. If you have a question or fieldwork experience to share, you can email us at fieldnotespod at gmail.com. You can also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at lingfieldnotes. If you've enjoyed this episode, please leave us an Apple Podcast review. Thanks for listening. Thank mm-hmm. you.